Hello, welcome to Five Questions uh, with Steve Moulter. That's me. This week's guest is Betsy Schneider. She's a photographer and filmmaker who explores and documents transformations of individuals and families over time and place. Uh, her work has been exhibited nationally and internationally and is currently featured in collections at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas City, and the Musit for Fotokunst in Denmark. My Danish isn't that good. Um, we actually met up because she was a guest speaker at a, uh, a portraiture class that I took at Mass Art last year. And when Betsy came in, I was just really taken with the way she explained her art, the way she talked about it. She was just very real, very honest. There was no pretension whatsoever. Um, thankfully, she uh, agreed to be a guest, and I was really excited to actually interview her and go to her studio in, south of Boston. We had a, a great conversation. Definitely inspiring, and uh, yeah, definitely changed the way I looked at my work. Meet Betsy. So we were talking about dark. And oh, yeah. This, yeah. So I'm curious yeah. like, what your thoughts are about, uh, you mentioned like, family and like how going home and like being home and having that whole thing. Um, yeah. So, so I was thinking, uh, about relative to this show to this idea of time travel and emotions and how, I mean, this one in particular, this idea that we are this in some ways, what part of us remains the same throughout, um, this is part of my takeaway is like, uh, of who we are, I guess. So that was kind of interesting, but also this time travel, we, we, when you go back to a place like home, like the house you grew up in, or you're back with your family, even after you're much older, you go back to roles and wh- whether it's even a place where you're talking about being back here in Massachusetts being, um, yeah, just, just, you advance in time and then you're back in time. And anyway, so it relates somehow to this, to this show. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I've, I've just moved, moved back from LA, right. To Boston. Right, and so right. I'm here and I've been living in my dad's house. Okay. Yeah. Right. Because just to get situated to like right, right. figure stuff out. And it's been, um, you know, it's been interesting. It brings up a lot of emotions because like I'm living an old life. I live in an old place you know, right. it's, and it's not right. the house I grew up in, but it's still like the family is like right there. Yeah. There's like yeah. obligation there and yeah. there's like all these things. Yeah. So it's like coming to a new city sort of, cause yeah. I've been gone for 14 years, Yeah, but it's also like a old life, old emotions. Right. It's very weird. It's it like exercising super, those demons kind of thing. It's super weird. Yeah. Even for me, even, so I lived in Phoenix for 12 years. Um, and I've been here now for four, I went back for one semester a while ago, the two years ago. But when I go back there, it's, I lived there again, about the same time you lived in LA, same amount of time. My kids grew up there and a lot of my life happened there. And I never really liked it there, but it's a part of me too. So, right. So I go somewhere and maybe some of the same things like you, I don't know, you realize who you are in some ways, or you realize that you're built by your experiences. I don't know. Maybe that sounds kind of, uh, no, I think it's true. Yeah. I mean, especially when you uproot and go somewhere else. Yeah. And for you, like raising a family there too, I can't imagine, you know, I was yeah. alone in LA, you yeah. know, single, but still it's like you, you know, yeah, it's just a strange experience. Yeah. But what, what builds you yeah. as a person, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's what hopefully we're here to find out, right? Okay. <laughs> you know? okay, okay. And, and that's <laughs> part of the work that I love that you're doing and, and why I really was interested in, in having you as a guest was because you're doing work that feels in the same ballpark as Five Questions, but it's also, you know, so much more, I don't know, there's something really special about, you know, 
the work that you're currently doing that you have been doing. I was really drawn to it when I saw it when yeah. Rania posted it. Um, or she told us you were coming and I was yeah. like, Oh, okay. Yeah. This looks pretty sweet, you know, sweet. Yeah. Well, so it was fun. There's definitely, a, as we talked about before, a lot of, a lot of overlap and this kind of a kernel of interest in the, in these very ideas, right? Of, I don't know. How are, how do we construct ourselves related to our relationships and, and how do we, I think as, as I get older, I'm starting to think of like how even related to what we were just talking about, how our identity is built through these experiences. And I don't, I don't know, there's some core that doesn't change to this idea of how, who, who we are and, and how much does our experiences make us who we are and how much is, is, is there. And I'm not looking, there's not a specific answer. Of course, it's this interplay, which is, <laughs> I keep coming back to this TV show <laughs> because I, I'm like, the more I talk about it, the more I realize that that's one of, of um, the threads that makes it so, so powerful is these questions that it's asking I think, I mean, other people might watch it and be like, what, what the fuck is she talking about? <laughs> but I do feel like this, uh, tell me if I'm talking too much this no. it connects to me also to some of the big, bigger sociological cultural issues that we're dealing with now with identity and kind of the obsession with identity politics or identity Olympics and the arts, which I think can become very problematic, but it's also super essential in this kind of idea of, of, um, identity coming with a kind of, well, I'm going off on a tangent, but I'm really interested in how defining the self and defining the self as connected to others and this negotiating that space is so important. And it's important for creating strong self, but it's also, so whether it's, you know, your identity as a Muslim or being gay or um, a mother or, a bike rider or something even, I mean, that's my project's kind of a little bit about that or having red hair or having had, have ADD, you know, this whole idea of that we're, we're constructed and then we're constructed of you are, you know, you're 14 years in LA and my 12 years in Phoenix and my four years in London. And so I'm a construction of all these things. And how do these make me, I mean, there's the oppressed idea, there's the privileged idea, right? So there's ways in which I'm so privileged. And then there's ways in which there's situations where it hasn't been fair. And, you know, and so all of these things come together to form me. Um, so I, I like, I'm very interested in categories. I'm really interested in the categories I fit into, but I'm also really interested in how uh, I don't fit into those categories. And, and when I'm really particularly interested when there's irony or there's, there's conflict or, or something, not even conflict, something that's like somebody seems like they go in one, but they don't go in another. I'm so I'm super interested in, in things like, I think like your project where you realize you might have an idea of what somebody's like, and then you find out that, well, maybe they are like that, but then they have this whole other dimension that runs counter. I mean, I love that kind of stuff. I love... Of course, I cannot think of a single example right now, <laughs> but I love it. I love stories about people who defy expectations. Totally. And so that's part of what I'm really interested in is, is, um, it's funny. I, I think about like my partner goes crazy sometimes because I'm so interested in like saying, Oh look, there's somebody, Oh look, it's interesting. Like this, there was an interracial couple at the sideline of the soccer game and I'm really interested. And there's a dad, I think maybe he's gay. And, and she's like, why do you have to categorize people? And I was like, no, that for me is so interesting. Cause one, like just 
being generic, you know, suburban parents on the side of a soccer field, you're looking for interesting people. On the other hand, like I think of an experience I had, tell me if I'm just going on. No, no, no. <laughs> when I was teaching, um, at Anderson ranch a couple of years ago and I had this young woman who was, uh, um, she was from Kansas and super cute, blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, in so many ways, just like stereotypical girl, woman, young woman. She's one of the most amazing students I've ever had. She took these amazing photographs of her siblings. She had not had a dramatic life. She had, she, by all, you know, accounts from what I could see, pretty normal, vanilla, so to speak. And she was one of the most remarkable students I've ever had. And that sounds silly, but I loved it. I mean, I loved that it was, she wasn't the package she came in, right? In the same way, you know, I love when you have a student who, who does come from somewhere super exotic and ends up having complexity. I just, right. does that make sense? Well, Did I tell that I, story? I think, yeah, absolutely. And like for me hearing that, it's like, there's two parts of that equation, right? Because one is that that person has other layers, but two, we're looking for them, right? Yeah. You know, and like you're out there looking for those other layers because it's easy to look at somebody who's a little, you know, a blonde, cute, young girl, young woman, and have somebody just pigeonhole her and go, yeah. that's who she is and never give her a chance. But to have the ability to give someone that extra time to learn yeah. more, to yeah. dig in, yeah. because right now, like you said earlier, in the, this day and age or whatever, there's so much the categorization and this is who you are based on what I see and I don't care about the rest. And that's awful because we're completely just separating ourselves from everything and each other. And then we did, we deny connection where connection could be real and truthful. So my question, and I think, you know, in some ways what we're doing, right. You know, what you're doing here is a way to get at it. Right. I mean, this, this storytelling, um, listening, really listening to people's stories and, and going in with not some pre preconceived idea of what you're going to get and who you're going to meet. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a total paradox. I mean, it's a catch 22, um, that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll seek people like, I mean, you and me, you know, you seek people who you feel like you re- things resonate with. And, um, in, in teaching art school is always interesting too, because, um, there's someone you should definitely should interview. His name okay. is Bruce. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and he was a, he was a mass art student. He's older, um, and he was he was the odd man out. He's kind of grew up with a working class motorcycle riding. He talks about like growing up with a lot of racism, and he's so he he is one of the most diverse students I've ever had. But he's like you know he's a white guy, right? And I think about. Uh, he in some ways stretches me when I talk to him, I realize he's got experience that I, I, I see my own bubble and I, um, he talks about being able to walk between worlds and, um, I'm really interested in that. I, in some ways ta- knowing Bruce and then also I don't, I talked about my project with a 13 year olds, which made me realize how, uh, much of a bubble I live in. Right. And, and, but on the other hand, right, I'm protective of the bubble because I feel like my bubble has a lot of good things and we val- we have a lot of good values, right? Yeah, <laughs> right? absolutely, right? yeah. So it's this kind of contradiction. Um, I had that teaching at Harvard too, right? It was like I taught their first semester and it was like amazing, right? And Harvard is such a good example of like probably one of the most evil places and one of the most good places <laughs> put together on yeah. the planet. Yeah. Like, 
it nurtures such amazing thought. And I had amazing students and people who are going to change the world in really good ways. And then... <laughs> and then the other side. Yeah. And it's such, I mean, I feel like that's, I really feel strongly and I love the potential and I love the thought that goes on there. And then, and then you think about like being the second largest nonprofit on the planet and the mm -hmm. money and the power mm -hmm. that comes there. And, and I think most thinking people at Harvard know that. I mean, I, think, I, think I hope so. They, it's a <laughs> knowledge that it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really complex combination, but why? But I loved it too. I mean, I loved it. I can see like, you know, um, I can see not loving it and I, you know, I, and I, I, I can see, see that, but there was something about that space and that the things that I went to see and the way I heard people talk about things, it was so incredible. And I mean, I was in the arts and the humanities and the underfunded arts and humanities of Harvard <laughs> and the contrast anyway. So anyway, so that's, that's this. So you actually have five questions? Do you actually? I have do, okay, and let's that's why this is like part of the thing. Ahead. No, because I, I enjoy the the conversations because it's you know they kind of ease into it. But okay, uh, the first question I have actually is um, so so basically the way I do it is I have like thirty questions and I like pull as I go. okay. So like I'm riffing, I'm just making these up with you, okay, because of who you are and what I know about you. Uh, first question I have: um, What's the most difficult thing you've ever had to do? Wow. I start off really easy, by the <laughs> That's way. That's great. I love that you're not afraid. No. Um, I don't know. I, um, I might have to divide them into categories of, of different kinds of difficulty. Off the bat, I would have to say that the single moment that comes to, I mean, one, there's like the physical thing of like giving birth to my daughter. <laughs> okay. So that's one, you mm -hmm. know, that's yep. one. Um, and you can, act, you don't really, it's, choose at that moment, I'm going to do this. Right. So you're going, you're going through it. So I, it, so one, it's a, there's a certain degree of passivity to it. So physically painful. Um, I think, and, and another thing that, that I was somewhat passive about was like watching my father die. So, but I think the single most moment was, um, without telling the whole story was I, was married to a man, to Frank, that some, some guy who told you about, and I met Meredith. Um, and uh, it, it was a moment that I t had to tell him that I had fallen in love with a woman, and maybe I was gay. I, I still don't know if that label works, but, you know, and and I mean, I, I could really make myself just start bawling right now, just uh, being honest with him. It took me like eight weeks to like realize that's what I had to do and do it and tell him knowing and, and hurting him like that. So that, that, that moment probably then I'm, I'm sure there've been other things, but that that's what comes to mind is that telling him at that moment. Um, and it's hard, like, it's hard to forgive myself for that moment of hurting someone that much. So well, what's there to forgive though? Not just, you know, at any moment. I mean, I was, I was being honest and, and I think <clears throat> there's a part of me that knows that that, you know, and, and he and I are actually good friends and we got through it. We worked through it. Um, and it's taken years and in some ways, maybe not as it hasn't, it was hard, but, um, the rewards in some ways too are, are, are pretty significant that I, I have a, you know, pretty close friendship with him. And that we, you know, continued to be to be full parents together, but that that exact moment of of telling him was 
I don't know, it's that and, you know, yeah, again, my dad dying and, you know, so I'm sure I'm like trying to think of other ones too. I'm like, well, maybe I have more, but yeah. I'm, I'm interested in that because, uh, you know, obviously for the, the, there's obvious reasons, right? You're, you're getting, you're, you're telling someone you're not in love with them. Yeah. That's kills. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> but for me, I, as a child of divorce, um, I'm curious how your kids took it. And, I know. It's you know, why wasn't like, that harder? Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm just curious because, like, my parents were divorced because their marriage wasn't working. Yeah. Um, but they were really clear that it was not my fault or my brother's right, fault. Right. Right. And they also full parents together, and now they're good friends. Yeah. Like how that to me is a story worth telling, yeah. right? And so I'm curious yeah. how you, yeah. you know, f- love aside, the marriage wasn't working, right? And. Yeah. How do you do that? Like, how do you approach being a parent with someone that you're not with anymore? You know, that's a, I think that's a, a great question. And I feel like hopefully, um, I mean, I, I think I assume your parents are older than I am, but yeah, uh, <laughs> I would assume that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're in their seventies. Okay. Yeah. So they're a lot older yeah. than I am. So actually I think that, you know, our generation, my generation, however you want to divide, you know, people in their forties, late forties and fifties right now. I see more people who are doing it. Um, now I'm trying to think of more examples, but I feel like my parents' generation didn't have models for, for, um, making it work. And I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, th- I'm, I'm spinning through now my own, my own parents' family history and, and the, the mistakes that I think they made, which is easy to judge our parents, um, but also my, the personalities of my parents and how they approached it, but also culturally what, what was happening in, in, the, you know, in the early 80s that would allow it. On the other hand, and I will get to this, I think about when, um, so when you get divorced, you have to go to this, and you have kids, you have to go to like, parenting class and Frank and I waited five years to get divorced we both stayed in Arizona um we lived like a mile apart we split evenly I mean we had a Frank and I had a very uh long tradition of functionally working together we we'd always split taking care of the kids from when they were little from the very I mean literally from the day Madeline was born you know I would breastfeed him uh, breastfeed her in bed and he would burp her and so like the nights went that way. Like, like I actually had, I actually got more sleep than he did because the burping took more, like you had to like hold the baby up. So, so we had this rhythm that, that assumed from the beginning that we were, we were both totally in it. Um, and partly you could say he's extraordinary or the relationship's extraordinary, but I also think like he's, you know, he was a full engaged parent, uh, like, which is great, which, but we should, <laughs> But I also don't think he deserves a medal for it. Right, you know, right. he got the medal. He's got like two <laughs> two kids who think he's fantastic, yeah. right? So we had a pattern already established where when he's you know he's an artist and and tried to be an academic, tried to be he didn't like academia, so I don't say try that he was unsuccessful. <laughs> he he's actually like you know, um, super self focused or not self focused, super self disciplined. Um, so he worked from home almost the whole the kids' whole childhood. And so we, we were able to not have to put our, when we put our kids in some daycare, but, but, you know, not, um, we were able to be there a lot for the kids. Does this make sense? Totally. Well, absolutely. I think that's something I see as well now of my, my, my friends now who have little kids. It's like, 
if it's possible, they try to do the one parent at work, yeah. one parent at home, you know, with some help. But yeah, yeah. It sounds like something yeah. like that. So, yeah. So anyway, without going too much into that, we had this. So we continued after we got separated. It was easy for us to one week, one week and respecting each other's space. And then, you know, when when he had the kids, um, he didn't ask me to come fill in unless we were traveling and stuff like that when I had the kids. So the weeks when I didn't have um, the kids, I worked like crazy mm-hmm. and got everything done. And then the weeks that they were with me, I could spend a lot of time with them. And I think, uh, I hope that my kids went through it without feeling like there was like some deficit. I mean, there's also some theories now, especially with fathers that after divorce, kids actually get closer. Um, that's, you know, some, some men actually really do. They're allowed in some ways to be a little closer to their kids. I mean, there's a lot of like gender politics and parenting that, you know, that happen really early on. Um, in terms of, of, of women and, and society, you know, this is their baby and their value. And so I think it's, it's complicated on, on both sides. So he and I spent a lot of t- had spent a lot of time already thinking about that. Um, but eventually it led to something a little painful for me, which I showed you this, the Skype work that I was doing with my kids. My son, when he was 12 to 14, went to live in Norway, um, which you want to talk, actually, <laughs> I knew <laughs> there was go. something else. <laughs> Uh, the thing with Frank was a single moment, but the single, single really hardest thing I ever had to do was to let, let him go live in Norway for those two years. Um, that, that may win, win it all, but it's, it's funny. It's about all the men in my life, isn't it? It's my dad, my son and my my ex-husband. It's, it's, it's interesting that, that, um, that those, those three people somehow, there's some kind of triad there. Um, How long was your son gone? Two years. So 12 to 14, you said, yeah, right? Which yeah, which is ironic, right? Because I did this whole project on 13-year-olds. <laughs> you missed the... Missed God. Uh, it, I mean, it's <clears throat> it's kind of... Uh, my idea was, with both of them, my daughter went to... She was 16 to 18, so it was a little... It's a different age for her. And she also... She, we just have a different relationship. He, Victor and I would, would go out every day and play. Like, play soccer, throw the football around. Like, this is... We... That's how we connected, was like... What, build Legos or so he and I, that was a ritual of our, how we connected and Madeline did sports, but it wasn't the same way we, we connected through talking about things. So for me, I lost, I lost that. I lost the way I, I connected with him. You know, we couldn't play soccer, you know, together every day. So wait, why am I, there was something else I wanted to talk about, but <laughs> I'm oh, pulling you off in different okay. tangents. It's okay. Now. Cause we're, yeah. we're still on the first question. So we can it's go on to the next one. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, the the work that you showed that Skype work is because you were like here you explained what yeah. it was, and I was like, mm, like how how is this going to be good? But when I saw it, it actually really did it touched me. It was really powerful because like I Skype a lot, I Facetime a lot. I was in L.A., so I would Facetime with my niece and my nephew, and I took screenshots. But there's just something different that I really appreciated about what you nice. showed. It yeah. was, you know, it's one of these things where sometimes the most powerful images are the ones that are just kind of the simplest moments, yeah. you know, and, and I don't know, I, I was moved by them. I thought it was I'm, great. I'm glad to hear it. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm actually really excited. It was kind of like work that made itself in some, it was made through like this emotional stuff and, and like screenshots, but, um, I'm, I'm kind of trying to finalize it and get it out there. And I, like, I, I do have that feeling like it wasn't labored, like other projects, like, Oh, I'm going to do this and do this. And so I'm really happy to hear that. So,
Okay, so ne next question, number two. <laughs> uh, no, 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 I love it. Um, what's your greatest fear? Oh my God. That's what one, yeah. So, as, as always, there's going to be a little bit of a story leading up to it. I remember like eight years ago or so when everybody was writing on Facebook, 12, 20 facts about me that... Um, oh, yeah, I... I, I actually, <laughs> I actually thought I it was pretty cool. I mean, so I'll have you know, to check because I probably did. And it, it was, it. it was, it was like this, right? It could be, depending on how seriously people talk took it. I, I actually really liked it. It's, I'm a sucker for stuff like that. Um, I remember that uh, my stepmom had a, a New Yorker cartoon where someone was like putting signs in their front yard about twenty things, and the car cartoon was, "Why can't you just do it like everybody else?" Right. <laughs> Um, and so one of the things I listed was, um, of, of my greatest fear, that might've been a question was about people I love, um, having head injuries or something wrong with their brain or their head. Okay. Since then my dad hit his head <laughs> and died, eventually died from oh, that. Man. And so at the end of his life, he was, he was, he wasn't quite a vegetable. He was like in between. Wow. He was, he was, he was pretty brain damaged by the time. And my mother has just has dementia. <laughs> oh, my God. So that particular fear, I mean, you can say, like, talk about future, right? Talk about, like, the, like did I know? I, I certainly didn't know about my dad, but did I know that my mom, probably I had some sense, you know? Um, and I, I think, yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely, there are definitely reasons I was afraid of that because of my mother. She She's a, kind of a controlled alcoholic or she was a controlled alcoholic so she didn't drink till the evening but then I never called her in the evening because I knew that like she's a different person right not not mean but just less coherent so I think that was connected so that used to be my greatest fear and I think probably like all like primal childhood fears right the fear of losing your parents and so now this has happened <laughs> right and the, you know then there's these like other insane fears that um you know, that you have in terms of something happening to your kids. Um, you know, of course, something awful happening to my kids. But actually, my greatest fear, my really greatest fear is I am such a humanist. My greatest fear is like the end of humanity. Okay. I actually have to say, when I start reading books about that, like I can't, I can't deal with it. So. Wait, why do you read books about that? If that's I know, your... <laughs> actually, was this one, I forget what it was called. It was about um, a second world, and the second world was occupied by people who were remembered, dead people who were still existed in the minds of people who were alive. And that, so these people lived in this place. So the story was two parallel stories, and the population of this town or this world was dwindling really, really fast, and there's like, I don't know, 100, 200, 300 characters um, who didn't really know why they were there, why they knew each other. And then you found out on Earth, everyone except this one woman in Antarctica had died of a, you know, a, a, a plague, right? And she was alone in Antarctica. Oh, so my God. Obviously, the, common, the thing that everyone had in common was that they knew her, right? Right. So they were only alive because they were alive in her in her brain. Kind of Whoa, interesting. That's I, I had to super, stop though. I was yeah. like, I can't read this. Super part. interesting concept though, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it? So, do you remember what it was called? Shit, no. I, Maybe we'll, we'll Google well, yeah. it and I'll try to. Yeah, try to find. Uh, <laughs> my oh, and another fear like losing my freaking memory. 
Yeah. And I am, I'm terrified of getting old and like, like, really? Yeah. I mean, I, I know I'm terrified of, not, I don't not want to get old. Right. Like, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. so you're scared of getting old, but you're scared of not getting yeah, old. Yeah. I'm scared. That's good. Yeah, you're putting yourself yeah. in a good I'm place. I'm like, it's like, <laughs> I want my brain and my body to go strong as yeah. long as possible. So, and you said your mom had, has dementia. Yeah. Is that, yeah. does that run in the family other than her? Uh, you know, I think it kind of does. So that makes this weird. Like my grandmother, um, but it also like also follows depression and I don't have depression. And I feel that both my mother and my grandmother, um, retreated for the, from the world for many years before dementia hit. Um, so I can't help but feeling that I'm maybe deceiving myself, right? That it's that it's controllable, and I'm afraid of that. But I'm trying not to. I'm. I'm. I feel like I'm also really, really, really different people from who they. Now, my father, I'm much more likely to slip on the ice and hit my head or slip on, hurt myself. Like I'm. I have much more of that personality where I'm. I can't believe I'm talking about how I think I might. I might die. I. I'm much more likely to die by accident right <laughs> okay, now. <good. laughs> so I that's guess. my. That's good. A, I, don't know, I feel like mark. that's like choking because I right. eat too fast <laughs> or I do silly things and I get I get really mad at people when I'm on a bike and they cut me off. So, you know, those are <laughs> see that is controllable, right? Temper yeah. flares, hopefully. Yeah. I want maybe I don't want to change when I get older, but I also feel like maybe I'll mellow and stop or I won't be strong enough or able to catch up to the car and hit them and give them the finger <laughs> anymore. <laughs> or they'll just laugh at me because I'll be some old woman on a bike right. and they'll be like, and you'll they'll take a picture of you and post it on Reddit or <laughs> yeah. Instagram or something and be like, who's this crazy lady? This scary one, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you'll be so, like, oh, that's I, yeah. Me. It was a really funny uh, transition from being kind of thinking of myself as kind of like a kid and young and weird to being like, when do you become like a crazy old lady? Like, when does it transfer from Whenever being charming and young yeah. to being like freaky old lady? <laughs> I wonder. There can't be like an age set. It has to be, it has to come from inside. It has to come from the heart. So I'll try to act like a child as much as I can. That's your truth. That's your authenticity. Charming, Charming, that's the key. Yeah, yeah. How do you define failure? Oh, God. These questions are like, I feel like I always have a million things to say about your questions. Um, always. All, both questions. So far. <laughs> I've been, you know, I think about this a lot, partly because of teaching, um, but partly because um, it's such a strong word. And I also, f- I feel like it's so absolute. Right. I mean, so my partner talks about her marriage failing. Um, and I feel like it's just, I can't say that my marriage failed because one, cause I've got two fantastic kids out of it. And this idea of like, if something doesn't last forever, I mean, so marriage is a particular thing, right? Like someone said to me once, like, Oh, the only way marriage is, isn't a failure is either, um, you know, is until somebody dies, somebody has to die for a marriage to not be a failure. Right. And, you know, if that's the way we look at things. So, so this idea of labeling things as failures, on the other hand, the idea of doing things that don't work out the way you want them to do, um, I think is, is, what was the question? How do I define define failure? Yeah, Yeah. good. I'm doing it. Um, I think 
is really important. It's important to not be afraid of things not working out the way you've preconceived them. It, it's okay to be upset about them. It's okay. Um, but I think, um, so failure, yeah, so I don't know how I would define it. I guess I would define failure as things not working out. Or, I mean, for me, it's like if, for something to really be a failure, it has to, it has to really have almost no redeeming uh, yeah no. like i'm trying to th- yeah. you know do you have anything in your life where you could be like oh yeah that's i don't know a that's failure. a good example of a failure i mean there's in this room there's a lot of like probably somewhere i could dig up plenty of examples of fail art fail failed art right and I, that's what i think of and i was like the only way you make good art is failed is by failed art um you know and then there's the idea of failing a class right which is very very you know, very kind of cut and dry. Um, so I once got a D in a class. It was art history. Once? Once. It's the only That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. I was a really solid B student. Nice. <laughs> um, and I remember it was art history. It's a giant art history class at the University of Michigan. I mean, the ironies are I was sitting with my friend from high, uh, one of my good friends who became an actuary. We recently talked about, she's like, that class was great. It was easy. I got an A. And another guy who went to Michigan Law School, wow. and obviously a very smart guy. And, and I sat there and I thought, and I became an artist and an <laughs> art professor. And so I've always, I have a bitterness about art history in general, like the, the relationship between art history. But it actually, I thought it was a good class. And the TA said to me, I think you got a lot out of this class. So failure yeah like that was kind of a failure i mean you got like a d i got a d so we'll call it an f right yeah, just it was for your right. sake yeah for my right? sake a d is a failure but do you feel like you learned from it i do um when i went to art school so I, I went to art school after i got my ba at michigan and i had to take art that art class again a version of that art class um but it was for artists okay. oh my god a plus on the final so I mean, one that he was teaching, he was a better, he was a better, he was a different teacher. He's actually the student of the professor. The TA? <laughs> he, was a, he, was a, he was actually, no, that he was, the professor that I had at Michigan, so it was a giant class, right, with, with sections. I found out later that the professor at the School of the Art Institute that I had later had done his PhD at Michigan under the professor. Isn't that, but Bob Lesher, my, my professor at the Art Institute, one of the most amazing professors I ever had, was taught to artists. You know, so, but arguably I get an A plus because I'd had it twice. Too. Yeah, well, it's true, right? You just so like up the ante. Defining failure. Yeah, that was a failure. Like, but I always think when you think something as a failure, if you could go back in time, you wouldn't do it again. And I, I just, there aren't that many things in my life. Like sometimes a, a meal that I order at a restaurant is a failure, right? Or <laughs> I should have got the I salad. To cook is a yeah, failure, yeah. right? Those are failures where you're just like, oh, shit, I wasted the money. I wasted the time. And there's like, this is something I have to throw in the garbage. Right, like you can't learn from it. Yeah. You can't eat it again. Right, right, You can't, right, order. You right, can't go back. Right, that moment's right. gone. I'm sure there's some. Maybe I just block them out. But I, yeah. No, I feel yeah. I mean, one of, for me, failure is if you try to do something, you don't get you want get what you want, and then you also don't learn from it. Yeah. Right, because yeah. like getting what you want, like I don't think that's a failure for me. Yeah. Because like what I want isn't necessarily what I need. Right. And it's not right. necessarily best for me. Right, right, right. So I know I can recognize sometimes in the moment, oh, I didn't get that thing that I really wanted. There's yeah. a reason for it. Right. And I'm, it's good. Um, but if I didn't learn from that experience, then I think to me that's a failure. Yeah. Right? So like that, that art history course, you got a D, but 
you took something from it. Yeah. And obviously then you got an A plus later. So obviously you learned, <laughs> you had the know. notes maybe. It's so. all pass fail actually. Yeah. Oh, okay. A plus on the final. <laughs> oh, okay, it was okay, an okay, art okay, school, gotcha, right? Gotcha. It was pass fail. Yeah, for sure. Right. <laughs> yeah, it was all right. It wasn't But I good. did get in the final, so. Yeah, right um, yeah I think so. And I, I, it's funny because I'm, I'm interested in this idea of talking about it too, about, about, I mean, I think of, of failures. Yeah. No, nothing redeeming, like buying something that you don't want at all and just sits around and you throw it away. That's a failure, right? Buying a really bad piece of food and then like, you know, being like, I don't take like this. And yeah. So yeah. waste, I think yeah. waste. Yeah, absolutely. That I, but, I agree with the waste angle. But my definition <laughs> of failure might be wrong. It might be too absolute. I mean, I think maybe, you know, not being afraid to fail too, not being afraid to, to, yeah. Okay. That uh, failure is fascinating to me. So I love asking that question. Um, it's great that you asked the definition of it too, yeah. because I think I'd never thought about, I mean, I think that that's part of maybe what the semantics between me and Meredith and talking about marriage and failures, maybe her definition of failure is different Absolutely. from my definition too. Right. So, right. I, yeah. We can all look at it differently. Right. It's important. Words are important sometimes. They definitely. <laughs> Not <are>. always. Yeah. <laughs> How do you deal with loneliness? Not very well. <laughs> so, uh, can you give me an example? Yeah, I'm a like a like the Myers Briggs extreme of of extrovert. Okay. Um, I mean, it's been a lifelong challenge. I, even it was something my parents talked about. Even when I was when I was little. Um, wow, this is good questions. <laughs> How do Thank I you. deal with loneliness? Um, I don't know. I mean, I I think I try to connect with people. I I try to not stay there. Um, I think a lot. I write. Um, I mean, I think increasingly, like I use uh, social media and the computer, which I don't think is good. Um, I don't think it's healthy. Um, I mean, there's some ways in which like, so negative feeling loneliness, I get out of as quickly as possible. And ideally not with, with social media, but with connecting with people, with reaching out. Um, but what does that negative loneliness look like to you? I mean, is it, where does it come from? Yeah. I don't experience it very often, I think, because, um, what does it look like? Uh, feeling like nobody understands me, but I, I, I actually don't feel that way very often. It's funny. I don't think I actually feel lonely very often. Slight, slight, um, tangent. Um, one of the things that they say about people with ADD, which I have, um, or ADHD is that fear of boredom is a, is a, a huge thing, but actually people with ADHD and ADD are rarely bored. So, and I do, I have that total feel of boredom when I get on the airplane and once I made the mistake and I didn't, and I have one book and I finished it, I take like tons of books. I have always have so much stuff to do because, um, yeah. And, and, and I'm never, I'm rarely bored. I can look out the window. I can see, I find things really interesting. And I, I think I have, uh, there's an analogy with loneliness and, and boredom to me is, um, I'm really afraid of it, but. I am rarely lonely because I feel, I mean, I'm, maybe I think I'm good at that, like making, making connections and finding people. It connects probably to my fear about the end of humanity, right? Because this is like the core of how I connect with the world. Um, so I guess that's it. I mean, yeah, totally. That's interesting. Um, 
it's it's funny because you're very aware of how your sort of fears and your experiences connect. You know, you keep, mm-hmm. you keep going, oh, well, what that, that connects to my fear of humanity, <laughs> the loneliness thing. And then like, you know, dealing with men in your life, right? And yeah, having those experiences yeah. or dementia and your fear of sort of growing old and all these things. That's, it takes a, I think it takes a lot from someone, a lot of digging. You have to dive deep for your, on yourself, right? To yeah. Kind Maybe of that's how I do it. I dig deep on myself. I mean, I do also f- do it for sport, right? I do this like thinking about emotional stuff, you know? It's so much so, fun, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's so, f- I, I was actually just talking to a friend this morning about this because my, my partner, funny, is she doesn't think it's fun to deal with emotional no, stuff. I don't know how we, how we end up together. Like, it's definitely, uh, there's tricky areas to ne- negotiate, but, um, but I was thinking of it analogous almost to a kind of masochism. I, I don't think it is, but I do find pleasure in connections and pleasure in discovery, like discovery and this, this kind of thing, art making. I think it's the puzzle of how we relate to the world is really interesting. And I, I think if I'm not going to start with myself and maybe that connects to why, how I deal with loneliness <laughs> is I like dig in myself. I don't right, know. I right. think it is though. I think like, and I am, um, it's, it's a little, it's, it's, I know it's probably crazy for people who live with me. I think it drives my, my son crazy, but that I'm constantly like my brain can't stop right. trying to make connections. So, so I'm imagining you don't meditate. I do not meditate. I, yeah. I, 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 try, I'm, I try to work out. Yeah. That's like as close. Yeah, and yeah, I drive. Yeah. Like I used to drive across the country every 15 years. You would drive to Phoenix? I drive to Phoenix. I drove here every summer. Oh for, my I drove God. to Michigan before I, before I got together with Meredith. And then after I drove. So 15, my four kids, 15 years, <laughs> I drove both ways. So, and I can't, and I've been driving back and forth to Michigan where my mom's, my mom is, and my daughter's in college. So that's the closest. It is. It's, wow. That's the closest I come to but meditation. I, I, but I think there's a lot of meditative things you can do that aren't meditation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I appreciate, like, especially exercising is huge. And but driving, that's that's a lot of miles. That's, that's impressive. Do you like not like flying, or do you just have too much stuff to bring? Um, combination. Okay. I'm cheap. Okay. And it, the Fair. way I, the amounts that I drive end up being. Um, although actually, I just bought a plane ticket for my son me and my son to go to Michigan and it, it actually is far cheaper than the gas would have been (laughs) just, I found a cheap ticket, but, um, yeah, I think it's a couple things. I think, um, there were practical reasons and, and, and my parents in Michigan live 200 miles away from each other. So when my kids and I would come for the summer, we needed to be able to get back and forth. And, but I think it's a control thing. I actually have to be really honest about that. And I think like, I like the control that I have in a car. I like to drive. I do not like to be a passenger on those road trips. I can tell you like, so it's, it's a control issue, I think. Um, and I do, there's also part of me that loves, I love the country. Like I love that feeling of what you can see, the visual. This was a great um, interview with Anna Leibovitz. I'm not necessarily a huge fan of hers, but she talked about, her looking out the car window throughout her childhood being really definitive in shaping her being a photographer. And I, I really relate to that, just like how you can just look and look and look. And even if it seems boring, there's just like that visual stimulation. So Interesting. I like it. Yeah. I mean, I get exhausted from it, you know. Yeah, but it's but still, it's worth it in the end, right? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Oh, well, maybe not always, but usually. So I'm driving, to DC. I'm driving to DC tomorrow. <laughs> oh my God. Well. Taking my son to see his dad. So we're like, we're going down for a really, yeah. So I'm actually, that I'm not looking forward to. Boston to DC on a Friday night. 
That, oh, that yeah. does not sound like fun to me. No, it's terrible. So. Masochism. That's because I'm go. short. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am masochist. It all comes back around. Oh, yeah, it does. Okay, so the last question I have, I ask the same of everybody. Okay. Um, what will you miss the most when you're gone? Oh, I, I guess that's a question, like an existential question in terms of like, I don't, I think I'll be gone, you know? I, this is hard. It's hard to like admit that this is what I think. Um, but I think if I'm dead, I think I won't, you okay. know? Um, so no heaven, hell action from you? No, no. I like, I believe too much in some kind of essential, what would you say, goodness, balance, or fairness to believe that there is some kind of, um, the world is intense enough. There's enough, enough consequences and pain in life. I feel like there is overall this kind of balance. It's not fair. Right. It doesn't mean like some people don't have inordinate amounts of pain in their lives. And like I've been reading this book about Stalin and Hitler. I mean, you want to talk about extremes. But I feel like I just can't believe that the structures out there would have anything that would have any kind of perpetual like happiness or perpetual hell or these like I'm really interested in those ideas of like like the the like you will suffer like, you know. Prometheus, right? The liver is going to get eaten out every day and it's going to hurt just as much. Every, and the impossibility of that, that how are, but also Black Mirror. Do you watch Black Mirror? I haven't really watch watched, watched it a Mirror lot. Twilight Zone, too. for yeah, sure. It's Twilight Zone. But it's just modern yeah, Twilight Zone. Yeah, that's what I've Zone. heard, yeah. Um, and it's good, but they, it starts to explore these ideas where you realize that there's there's a, the, the human psyche breaks down at a certain point. Like insanity is a, is a, is a protective measure, right? Because you can't, your capacity for feeling pain and despair and, and, um, ends, you know? So that's why I, I certainly don't believe in any, any concept of hell because I, I just, I don't think it's actually possible to, um, and the same conversely in this idea of like heaven, like this idea that there's going to be, so those things too. And, you know, there's like reincarnation and there's a lot of other things and the soul. And, but I think I, I have to say, it's hard for me to even admit that I believe this because it, it, it's funny. That's an interesting question because at first it seems so easy, right? But this idea of, of admitting, like coming to terms with what, you know, what I actually believe and I don't want to believe it. Like after my dad died, I was like, really want to believe. I really want to. And I couldn't. Like mm. I was like, this is a time where like, now is the time if you can believe. Mm. <laughs> so you know, my belief is that, you know, one, that what we do now really matters. I'm like this, this kind of existentialist idea of, of this is, this is it, or even like freaking, you know, Jacob Marley and a Christmas Carol, mm -hmm. right? What we do now. Um, so theoretically the inverse of that question or, or, or an extrapolation of that question is what matters the most now, right? So right. you're saying, what will you miss the most? I don't think I'll be here to miss it, but what do I enjoy most about being alive? And it's, I mean, that sounds so cheesy as being alive, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> but just like the idea of uh, those things scare me a lot. Like that. I'll talk about that. Like you have, have you read a Christmas Carol? Do you know that like, so the basic premise, um, is right. That this, that 
that Ebenezer Scrooge has lived this very selfish selfish life, but de denying himself to the basic. But he's also had, had the chance to make people's lives better, and he hasn't. So he gets haunted, but the, the idea is if he doesn't change himself, he will be forced to go through life, um, death, seeing suffering and joy that he can't participate in. And that is a pretty profound vision, I think, of, of what... Um, a kind of a, a, a kind of suffering that has a dimensionality to it that's about um, being alive and not being alive, like being able to see things and not being able to change them and not being able to participate, right? So being able to participate would be the thing that I would miss the most. There you go. So. Okay. All right. Perfect. Okay. That's it. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Did I talk enough? <laughs> Hey, thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, check us out at fivequestions.me, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, the whole thing. Uh, check out BetsySchneider.com. And if you're in the Phoenix area in May, she has an exhibit opening up at the Phoenix Art Museum. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs>